Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, November 28th, 2023. Uh, obviously, it's been a little while. I hope everybody who was celebrating had a happy Thanksgiving uh, and uh, got to spend time with family, friends, uh, whomever. Uh, and uh, yeah, welcome back. Uh, so let's get right into it. There are a couple of anniversaries. On November 28th, 1814, the Times of London was published via a new steam-powered printing press, making it the first major newspaper so produced. The use of the faster steam press took newspapers from a somewhat niche business to a mass market one in the process, boosting efforts to increase literacy. So overall, good job, I guess. Uh, on November 28th, 1943, Winston Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, and Joseph Stalin, three kings, began the Tehran Conference, the first of three major World War II meetings between the leaders of the UK, US, and USSR. The main outcome of Tehran was that Roosevelt and Stalin managed to get Churchill to commit to an invasion of France, as part, uh, in part to force Germany to pull forces away from their eastern front with the Soviets. They also discussed the eventual partition of Germany and the creation of the United Nations. On to the news in the Middle East. Obviously, we will start with Israel-Palestine, where Hamas and the Israeli government, thanks primarily to Qatari mediation, finally agreed on the terms of a detainee exchange and temporary ceasefire deal last week. The accord, which went into effect on Friday morning, was originally intended to involve the release of some 50 hostages being held by Hamas and other Gazan militant groups, uh, Gazan militant groups, excuse me and some 150 Palestinians in Israeli custody. Uh, Hamas has also been releasing a number of Thai and Filipino nationals under a separate agreement, uh, also negotiated by the Qataris. Uh, the arrangement was to have been implemented in stages over four days, ending Tuesday morning local time. The process appeared to be faltering on Saturday as Hamas delayed its hostage release while accusing the Israelis of violating the terms of the agreement before some additional Qatari diplomacy apparently salvaged things. Uh, now, the reason reason I keep referring to uh, all of this in this kind of stilted uh, past tense uh, voice and talking about what it originally, what the deal originally involved is because uh, the uh, two sides have since agreed to extend it. Uh, they have agreed to extend it, in fact, for at least two more days. So it would run, there would be two more, uh, they're doing daily prisoner exchanges, there would be two more of those, and the ceasefire would run, in theory, through Thursday morning local time. Um, albeit, there have been new accusations now from both sides about ceasefire violations, which is not a great sign. Uh, I'm not entirely certain about all the details of the extension, but Israeli officials have said that they're expecting Hamas to release at least 10 hostages per day, which at the um, apparent exchange rate suggests around 30 Palestinians will be released per day. Uh, efforts are underway to extend this arrangement beyond Thursday morning, uh, though it, it goes without saying that at some point all the hostages will be released and it's unclear what will happen then. It is true the conflicts at rest have a tendency to stay at rest, but Israeli rhetoric has indicated a clear intention to resume pulverizing Gaza once the detainee exchanges are no longer part of the equation. Uh, in other items, uh, some of the freed hostages have been talking to media uh, and described being treated poorly, which is not surprising. Uh, there have been claims of uh, treatment that seems outright cruel, uh, though I'm unaware, uh, which doesn't mean there haven't been claims like this, I just haven't seen them, uh, of claims of physical cruelty, apart from the cruelty of the initial abductions, of course. Uh, several uh, of the hostages seem to indicate uh, that their access to 
to food and water diminished over the course of their stay in Gaza. Uh, but that may be related to deprivations across Gaza more broadly that were caused by the Israeli blockade and the minimal amount of aid that has entered the territory. Palestinians released from Israeli custody who have been described as prisoners, though many of them have never been charged with anything under the West Bank's rigged military justice system, have described harrowing treatment, including torture, uh, this is consistent with claims made by Palestinians who were swept up in Israeli mass arrest operations since the October 7th attacks and subsequently released. On the subject of aid, the ceasefire is slash was intended in part to facilitate a surge of aid into Gaza uh, and its distribution throughout the territory, including across the heavily battered northern area. That effort does appear to have been successful, though, as United Nations officials have said, even this temporary surge isn't enough. Uh, to meet the need. Uh, the Biden administration is sending three military plane loads of humanitarian aid to Egypt this week for distribution in Gaza. Uh, over the four days of the initial exchange program, uh, which the, under which Israeli authorities, as I said, released somewhere around 150 Palestinians, uh, they detained another 133 Palestinians uh, in the West Bank. Make of that what you will. Uh, as Spencer Ackerman noted yesterday, uh, with events in Gaza getting most of the attention, uh, the Israeli government and its settler proxies uh, are continuing to kill, uh, that includes at least two more uh, Palestinians killed on Tuesday, arrest and displace Palestinians in the West Bank at unprecedented rates. Uh, unlike Gaza, where Israeli leaders have at least articulated the barest inkling of a goal, the destruction of Hamas, ostensibly, there is no indication what, if anything, might stop the violence in the West Bank. Uh, the Biden administration has dispatched CIA Director and de facto Secretary of State William Burns uh, into Qatar to participate, along with Egyptian, Israeli, and Qatari officials, in talks on extending the current pause. The administration is, of course, still refusing to call it a ceasefire. Uh, Burns is there mostly so the administration can claim credit for the ceasefire slash exchange deal, even though its embrace of the Israeli military campaign in Gaza uh, has left it unable to contribute all that much to this diplomatic process. Uh, actual Secretary of State Antony Blinken is also undertaking another European Middle Eastern tour this week, mostly from what I can tell, in order to look busy. Uh, one message the administration is now ostensibly delivering to the Israeli government is that any eventual military IDF incursion into southern Gaza has to be more circumspect than its obliteration of northern Gaza. In particular, in particular, the administration says it's insisting that a southern operation must not cause, quote, significant further displacement of persons, end quote. Uh, with most of the territory's population already displaced into the south, where the IDF has continued bombing them anyway, it's unclear where they would go. Uh, and with over 15,000 dead, uh, probably well over, given that it's been at least a couple of weeks since Gazan authorities could issue a reliable casualty update, uh, since the IDF began its retaliatory campaign, uh, the optics of this situation may finally be testing the administration's capacity for indulging Israeli war aims. And Israeli media outlets have gotten hold of leaked emails demonstrating that, uh, quote, a highly respected career military intelligence NCO, uh, this is from The uh, Guardian, in the IDF, uh, had warned her superiors over the summer that Hamas fighters were training for what looked like an attack on an Israeli kibbutz. 
Those warnings were, according to the email, subsequently corroborated, but then dismissed further up the chain of command with arguments that the training was nothing more than a staged demonstration. Uh, the emails may increase public anger toward the IDF, but seemingly give Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu evidence to bolster his claim that any failure to prevent the October 7th attacks rests with Israeli security forces rather than with his government. Perhaps that's why they were leaked. Uh, on to Yemen, where the Houthi rebels escalated their attacks on Israeli interests when they hijacked the cargo vessel Galaxy Leader in the Red Sea on November 19th. That ship is apparently part owned by an Israeli businessman, businessman uh, though there was no other immediately apparent connection to Israel, and none of the 25 people who were on board and who are now apparently in Houthi custody are thought to have been Israeli. Uh, later, the USS Mason, this was on Sunday, the USS Mason, which is a destroyer, uh, reportedly prevented the hijacking of another cargo ship in the Red Sea. Uh, but U.S. officials now believe that the hijackers uh, were Somali pirates rather than Houthi fighters. Uh, they have not ruled out the possibility of some sort of Houthi involvement, uh, but they have no evidence of it uh, as yet. Some Israeli shipping now appears to be diverting around Africa to avoid the Red Sea and thus the further risk of hijack, which needless to say makes for a significantly longer journey. In Turkey, and this is kind of an odd little story, uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan had told reporters earlier this month that his Iranian counterpart, Ebrahim Raisi, would visit Ankara on Tuesday. Turkish media reported on the planned summit for more than two weeks, even as late as Monday evening. But Tuesday came and Raisi was uh, not there. Uh, it's unclear whether this was an intentional snub or a miscommunication, particularly insofar as the Iranian government never mentioned any planned summit. Either way, it is, as I say, somewhat bizarre. Uh, in the United Arab Emirates, the BBC is reporting, based on leaked briefing documents, that UAE officials are hoping to use the COP28 Climate Change Summit, which they're hosting later this week, as a forum for concluding some new oil and natural gas deals. You really couldn't make this up. Uh, UAE officials haven't denied the report, but they have said their focus is on achieving, quote, meaningful climate action, end quote, at the summit, uh, efforts to undermine that action apparently notwithstanding. Uh, and in Saudi Arabia, another investigative report, uh, which was uh, highlighted by a number of outlets, including The Guardian, suggests that the Saudi government is pursuing its own oil forward agenda, something called the Oil Demand Sustainability Program. This effort aims to use the kingdom's massive public investment fund and some of its largest companies to sell developing nations on an array of fossil fuel-heavy technologies, including supersonic aircraft, gas-fueled cars, and oil and natural gas-fueled power plants. The initiative is primarily aimed at emerging African economies, and as the name suggests, it is intended to sustain oil demand even as developed countries move increasingly toward renewable energy. This is, of course, completely incompatible with the kingdom's stated adherence to the international climate agenda, though if you think the Saudis actually mean what they say when they talk about reducing carbon emissions, you are a far more trusting person than I. On to Asia and Myanmar, the Rebel Brotherhood Alliance claimed on Monday that its fighters had seized control of another significant commercial outpost close to the Chinese border in northern Myanmar's Shan State. In that sense, the rebels seem to have picked up right where we left them prior to Thanksgiving on the advance in Shan and several other provinces across the country. With Myanmar's ruling junta promising to stem those advances without actually demonstrating any ability to do so, the Chinese military conducted multi-day exercises near the border over the weekend. There's no indication that Beijing is planning to intervene here, but it would need to respond to any instability along the border itself.
In the Philippines, the Philippine government and the Communist New People's Army rebels announced on Tuesday that they will open, uh, reopen rather, peace talks under Norwegian mediation. Former Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte broke off the last round of talks in 2017, but the basic outlines are still in place for a deal that would see the NPA transition from militant to political movement in return for amnesty for its fighters. In North Korea, that country's military finally succeeded in putting a spy satellite in orbit last week, sparking an immediate security crisis along the Korean demilitarized zone. The South Korean government announced shortly after the launch that it was suspending part of the intra-Korean comprehensive military agreement in order to increase its surveillance capabilities along the border, which Pyongyang took as an invitation to scrap the rest of the deal and begin restoring border guard posts and moving heavy armaments into the border region. Now, the CMA bans aerial, aerial surveillance, and the South Koreans have apparently decided that that includes satellites as well as suborbital aircraft, so they have accused North Korea of having violated the accord first. Uh, hence uh, necessitating the subsequent violations. Uh, North Korean state media reported on Tuesday that the satellite had taken photographs of the White House and the Pentagon, which puts Pyongyang roughly on par with Wikipedia in terms of its new surveillance capabilities. Uh, on to Japan, where Prime Minister Kishida Fumio hosted Vietnamese President Val Van Tung on Monday. Sorry if I'm mangling that too seriously. Uh, at which time the two agreed to upgrade their bilateral relationship to the level of comprehensive strategic partnership. That means strengthening economic as well as military ties, which could pull Vietnam further toward the U.S. axis despite its still strong relationship with China. Uh, Tokyo has in the past helped to support Vietnamese activity in the South China Sea in waters whose ownership Hanoi disputes with China. Uh, the upgrade puts Japan's relationship with Vietnam on equal footing with China, India, and the United States. In Africa, in Sudan, the deputy commander of the Sudanese military, uh, Yasser al-Atta, de delivered a speech to the Sudanese General Intelligence Service in Omdurman on Tuesday, in which he openly accused the UAE government of supporting the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces Group. This is the first time a senior member of the Sudanese military slash de facto government has leveled that accusation directly, and it charges the UAE with complicity in a growing list of, uh, admittedly alleged, RSF atrocities particularly in the Darfur region. Atta further accused the governments of the Central African Republic, Chad, and Uganda of acting as conduits for UAE-supplied arms. In response, Emirati officials denied supporting the RSF and insisted that they have, quote, consistently called for de-escalation, a ceasefire, and the initiation of diplomatic dialogue, end quote, since the military and RSF went to war with one another back in April, just like they're, you know, not doing that whole oil thing at the COP summit. Uh, observers have noted that the RSF is using Using more is using more sophisticated weaponry, uh, especially drones, than it had at the start of the conflict. But the paramilitaries insist that they've seized those arms from Sudanese military bases rather than getting them from abroad. The Ugandan government also responded to Atta's charges, similarly rejecting them. In Sierra Leone, authorities say that unrest in Freetown early Sunday morning was the result of a, quote, failed attempted coup, end quote, involving a number of active duty and retired members of the country's military and police forces. According to Al Jazeera, they've arrested 13 military officers and one civilian and, quote, have published photographs of 32 men and two women uh, being sought in connection with the unrest. 
the alleged coup plotters uh, attacked a military barracks uh, and two prisons in the capital on Sunday, killing at least 20 people and releasing some 2,200 detainees, an unknown number of whom have since been recaptured. Uh, Authorities imposed a curfew in the city that they have since relaxed. Like most failed coups, the rationale behind this one remains unclear, though it presumably involves some combination uh, of political and economic resentment. President Julius Mada Bio's narrowly and heavily disputed victory in June's presidential election may have ratcheted up some of those resentments. In Liberia, the official results came out while I was on break, but challenger Joseph Boakai did in fact defeat incumbent George Weah in Liberia's presidential runoff earlier this month. Weah, to his credit, conceded without incident even before the release of those official numbers. Uh, In Burkina Faso, some 3,000 jihadist fighters reportedly attacked the town of Jibo in northern Burkina Faso on Sunday. This is according to Burkina-based state media. Uh, Details are very spotty, but authorities are claiming that security forces killed at least 400 attackers from the al-Qaeda-aligned Jamaat Nusrat al-Islam al-Muslimin group, which has kept Jibo blockaded and largely cut off from the rest of the country for more than a year. There is no definitive word on casualties among security forces or civilians, though the UN says it's confirmed at least 40 civilians killed and more than 42 wounded. On to Europe and Russia, where a court on Tuesday extended the detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich through at least January 30th. Russian authorities arrested Gershkovich in in March on spying charges that they've never fully explained, contending that the details are classified. He will presumably be traded back to the U.S. at some point, but Russian officials have said they won't discuss a prisoner swap until after Gershkovich stands trial, and they continue to delay that process. A new report from the Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center and the Levada Center shows that domestic support for Russia's war in Ukraine has not diminished, even as Russians show increasing weariness for the conflict and the economic hardships caused by Western sanctions. Indeed, the hardship appears to be hardening attitudes toward negotiations, with a number of focus group subjects expressing the view that Russia has sacrificed too much to give up any of the Ukrainian territory it has seized. I bet more sanctions will solve that problem. Uh, let's let's give it a try. Uh, in Ukraine, the Ukrainian military's commander in Avdivka, Vitaly Barabash, told a media outlet on Tuesday that the Russian military has intensified its assault there and is now, quote, attempting to storm the city from all directions, end quote. It's unclear whether the Russians would be able to use Avdivka as a staging ground for further offensives, particularly in the short term, given the impending onset of winter. But taking the city would, at the very least, further secure Russian-controlled parts of Donetsk Oblast. Uh, elsewhere, Mariana Budanova, the wife of Ukrainian military intelligence head uh, Kirlo Budanov uh, has reportedly been hospitalized for heavy metal poisoning, and there are indications that a number of officials in the military intelligence service, or GUR, have also been poisoned. I will leave it to the reader to speculate as to potential subjects, given the long history of Russian poisonings or Russian-related poisonings. I, I don't want to accuse the Russians of anything. It's just that people who get on Vladimir Putin's bad side tend to wind up being poisoned uh, at somewhat elevated rates compared to the rest of us. Uh, so you you can you can take it from there. Uh, The Ukrainian military will later this week, or the Ukrainian government rather, will later this week reportedly unveil a number of changes to its military mobilization system in an effort to reduce the incidence of both draft dodging and a forced conscription. 
Full details aren't yet known, but one part of the reform will involve the use uh, of uh, commercial recruitment companies to identify potential conscripts who have needed skills, for example, mechanics. Uh, These individuals will then somehow be given assurances that they won't be deployed to the front, but will instead be put to work in support roles. Given Ukraine's need for more frontline soldiers, however, there has to be more to this plan than that. Uh, In Poland, President Andrzej Duda on Monday swore in a new government led by incumbent Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki in a move that has opposition leaders crying foul. Morawiecki has two weeks to form a government that can pass a parliamentary confirmation vote, a task even he acknowledges he is almost certain to fail, given the results of last month's election. So Duda, who favors Morawiecki's right-wing Law and Justice Party, is simply delaying the opposition's inevitable takeover for another two weeks. Why, you ask? Well, it seems fairly clear at this point that he's delaying in order to give law and justice more time to appoint party loyalists to important state positions, which could create problems for the government that will presumably take office after this two-week period is up. In Finland, that country's government, which had already closed all but one of its checkpoints along the Russian border, is planning to close the entire border for the next two weeks in hopes of stemming the flow of asylum seekers attempting to enter Finland. Authorities say that 900 such people have tried to cross the border from Russia this month, a hefty increase that they say is the product of a deliberate effort by the Russian government to funnel people to the border. In the Netherlands, uh, confounding polling that had suggested a narrow race, the far-right party for freedom, or PVV, handily won last week's Dutch parliamentary election. It came away with 37 seats in the 150-seat House of Representatives, 12 ahead of the second-place Green-Left Labour Alliance. The victory may put party boss Geert Wilders in line to become the next Dutch prime minister, assuming that he can moderate his extremist agenda enough to attract coalition partners, which may be easier said than done. Uh, In the Americas and Argentina, speaking of far-right election victories, libertarian extremist Javier Millet won Argentina's presidential runoff on November 19th. Polling, which had been wrong at every stage of this election, was wrong again, having predicted a tight race, only to see Millet win an 11-point victory over Finance Minister Sergio Massa. Uh, Millet, whose agenda includes dissolving Argentina's central bank and ditching the peso in favor of the U.S. dollar, may find himself struggling against a relatively unfavorable Congress once he takes office next month. And finally, in the United States, uh, Mohammed Asafin at The Nation finds both the U.S. and Israeli plans for the future of Gaza to fall short for one seemingly basic reason. And I'll read you the introduction to his piece. Uh, Speaking to reporters last week, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken suggested that the territory's governance should be unified with the West Bank and laid out a series of edits for the future of Palestine. Gaza cannot continue to be run by Hamas, Blinken said. It's also clear that Israel cannot occupy Gaza. It is imperative that the Palestinian people be central to the governance of Gaza and the West Bank. Blinken's parameters were defied days later by Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who declared, quote, IDF forces will remain in control of the the Strip, end quote, and made clear that he will not allow the Palestinian Authority to play a role there. Netanyahu then told Fox News that Israel does not seek to occupy Gaza, though given the facts on the ground, it's hard to know how Israel defines occupation. The back and forth over what comes next in Gaza has prompted headlines like this one from NBC News. The gap between the Biden administration and Netanyahu government over Gaza's future is widening. But there is a glaringly absent party in these conversations, the Palestinian people themselves. Nobody seems particularly interested in what they might have to say about the future of their land.
What a surprise. Uh, on that note, that's all for us tonight. Uh, thank you. And again, I hope you had a, a good holiday, a happy holiday. Uh, if you were celebrating, if you weren't, I hope you enjoyed your time away from me. But I'm back now, so uh, there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, but on that note, seriously, uh, that's all for us tonight. Thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter and for sticking with me through uh, the Thanksgiving holiday and uh, through uh, hopefully uh, a long time to come. Uh, thanks especially to those of you who are foreign exchange subscribers and those of you who are paid foreign exchange subscribers who make this newsletter possible. Uh, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.